Welcome to the Innovation Conversation, a podcast about innovators, both in business and real life. Hosted by myself, Ricardo Pesqual, and Harry McDonough. Today's episode is sponsored by Hyperskill. Hyperskill is a learning and training platform that enables people from all over the world to learn new tech skills. If you're looking to learn new tech skills, this is a platform to choose. You can find out more about them on hyperskill.org. Today we are talking with Bradley Hornby, one of the founders of Homebound. Welcome to another episode of the Innovation Conversation. Today we're joined by Bradley Hornby, one of the founders of Homebound, and he's going to tell us all about Homebound. So Bradley, uh, if you want to go ahead and just tell us a bit more about yourself and Homebound. Hey guys, Ricardo and Harry, thanks for having me. Um, Yeah, so my name is Bradley. I'm one of the co-founders of Homebound. We're essentially a marketplace for furniture rental. Uh, A key focus for us is is direct-to-consumer. But as we've launched, um, the B2B side of the business has actually really grown as well. So it's been an exciting, albeit challenging journey so far. Um, and we're excited to dive into it a bit deeper with you guys. Oh, sounds cool. Right. So do you want to kind of tell us, tell us and our audience a bit yeah. more about how this idea came about and how you got started? I read a bit on the website, but I want to hear from, from you because it's always... Yeah. Read one thing, and there's always a bit more of insight. So yeah, of course. So I mean, unlike I think, I mean, I think a lot of founders have like this dream, right, or vision from you know five years old, and sort of it transpires. It, it was a little bit different from my side. I, my other co-founder Oscar, uh, we worked together at a company called Fever. Uh, it's just actually reached unicorn status. Um, I was in charge of all the revenue uh, for the business and took them through four rounds of funding. But I was only in charge of. The revenue as such and you know seeing what they were up to and sort of raising funds and you know growing this amazing business i you know this really attracted me and i always wanted to do something similar so um i actually left the business went and got married in cape town and the plan was to take um to, yeah it was fantastic it was great a lot of wine um and the plan was to take uh to take a year off go traveling and then come back and you know sort of work out what's next unfortunately covid was three months around the corner so I only got about three months into this, you know, planned year of traveling. Um, and then I came back to the UK and had a bit of time, obviously, that nobody was really hiring. I mean, if anything, everything was in freezes. So I had a fair bit of time on my hands. And Oscar and myself got together and we were like, no, look, let's definitely start something. And we got to having a look at what's working extremely well in other major markets mm-hmm. that hasn't quite taken off in London or Europe for, for that matter. And so there was two things, and, and um, I mean, so alongside that as well as the whole sharing economy, sustainability, that side was really attractive, but we just wanted to work out, you know, what commercially would would, would sort of stick. Um, so there was two ideas. Uh, one of them was toy sharing, but obviously being COVID, nobody was swapping anything. I mean, so, <laughs> <I feel laughs> right. yeah. so we thought this didn't, yeah, this didn't really have much legs. Um, and then on the, the furniture rental side, um, it kept on popping up. And I think, I mean, not to sort of branch off too deep here, but if you think around society at present, you know, home ownership is becoming harder and harder. So what you have is sort of a sticking point where people are renting more and more. So they're moving, you know, often with every two years, uh, they get to move to a new place or they have to move to a new place, you know, whatever comes first. Um, and what happens is you then have people who don't want to spend a lot on quality furniture because they're not sure if what they buy now is going to fit into their new property. Is it worth buying this? Will it fit? What's going to happen in two years' time? So there's a real big sort of sticking point around that. And there's no company you know, yet, sort of unlike ours, that's very simple in terms of you can go on, you can pick your item, you can pick how long you want to rent it for. Really nice quality. We'll come deliver it. 
you know, use it as much as you want. And then if you get to the point where you've actually paid as much as uh, it would have been to sort of buy the, op- uh, buy the furniture, you would own that item anyway. So this really? was really unique. Yeah. So anyway, this was the one we, we sort of doubled down on. Um, we put our own money in to test the sort of the MVP, if you would. Yeah. Uh, it worked really well. So we did 40 odd thousand in the first two weeks. We were like, wow, this is fantastic. You know, we, we've definitely got something. <laughs> yeah. Flip side of that coin is, so when we first started, we were putting our own money in. So somebody would rent an item, we would buy the item, deliver the yeah. item, and then just take the rental income. Now, the rental income does make more than the sort of buying the product. The problem is, is that takes time. Yeah. So cash flow wise, it's a very tricky business to, to sort know. of get up and running. And unlike the US, uh, you know, people in the UK don't go and raise a pre-seed MVP two million, you know, yeah. pound round here, right? It's it's re- or you you can, but you really would have had to prove concept, you know, in some really significant way. So it's a lot trickier here. So we then sort of went back to the drawing board, um, went back to our suppliers, and this is where the whole sort of marketplace thing comes in. Is we now work on a revenue share model with our suppliers, which makes the whole idea much more scalable, right? So we're not losing any money up front. We can acquire consumers at a relatively cheap rate um, and effectively have that long, long, sort of long tail revenue. And the nice thing is we worked out with the suppliers um, that we will own those items at some point, in which case we will end up taking 100%. So the model then really started to, to gain some traction. Um, and we closed our pre-seed round in December last year. So mm-hmm. it's been, you know, really, really strong growth this month. And we're about nice. a month out from, from getting to the 85 million ARR, which has been a sort of a really big, you know, uh, goalpost for us for some time. So, yeah, sorry, I waffled on a bit there. But that's, uh, that's us in a nutshell. This is actually quite interesting. So when you started yeah. the business, you're literally putting your own money in. And only yeah. after you've been quite successful because you had a lot of clients and you got to the yeah. point where you're actually lacking cash flow, did you actually go back to the market? But not so much to get investors, but to talk with your suppliers and say, hey, can yeah. you guys offer us some type of deal here uh, yeah. where we work together, we share the revenue, and you still haven't exactly. gone to investors until this stage, up until yeah. the stage, right? No, up until that stage, no. So the, the problem was is if you looked at the financial model before mm-hmm. we spoke to these suppliers, yeah. The only real way you you actually get to prove concept, sort of, you know, get past the pre-seed stage, is mm-hmm. by raising a million pounds. There's yeah. just that the thing is, is the the financial model without splitting that revenue and having those initial upfront costs, your mm-hmm. cash burn is just so high that no, you know, it's very rare that you find an investor willing to take a gamble like that. So, that our whole our whole thing is okay. Well, look, you know, we needed to go back. So we, I mean, we did fish around. It wasn't like we didn't. We did. We spoke to a couple of investors and they were all like, look, you're absolutely crazy with a financial model like this. You need to go back to the drawing board or pick another idea. So, look, we, we were quite convinced at that point, right? We had spent, you know, very little on marketing. There was clearly traction. There's clearly a demand. Nobody else is doing this. It's working really well in other markets. You know, we, we were pretty confident at this point that we were onto something. We just needed to find uh, another way to crack the nut, right, for, for lack of a better word. So, um, went back to the suppliers agreed the revenue share with the suppliers, then went back to those same investors, one of which actually jumped on board and said, look, we've taken what you said on board. We've gone back. We've managed to negotiate. Um, and I presume, you know, having a look at the way that they've done in the US, this is pretty groundbreaking in terms of actually getting suppliers on board happy to split that revenue. Um, and this is where that where that marketplace um, idea comes in, because we have live stock feeds directly into our suppliers. We don't hold any of that stock. The risk to us is very low. 
but the upside to both parties is very good, you know, provided we can keep those items out. And one of the, I guess, the key aspects of the business model, which we were very concerned about, and it's something that you don't really know the answer to until you've gone through, you know, a couple of years to actually see what's happening is when those items come back in, what are people like? Are people okay with secondhand furniture? Because mm-hmm. in the US, it's quite a thing. People are quite used to it. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's not a big thing. But in the UK, how is it going to get taken on? And actually, it's called Pre-Loved on our website. Um, <laughs> pre-Loved. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, pre, Pre-Loved is our um, highest hit page. People spend the longest on there. And on average, 95% of the stuff that comes back in goes back out within three weeks. So clearly, you know, we're now really starting to understand, okay, well, actually, provided it's, you know, so we do give a 20% discount to all items that have been out previously, but actually people don't mind it. And I suppose if you think about, you know, sort of boil it down back to the basics, rented furniture is is obviously going to be used, right? Like if you rent anything, if you rent a car, you're not expecting it to be brand new. So there's still, look, it's it's early days, right? Um, There's a lot we need to find out, make mistakes on, stumble okay. over. Yeah. Well, the other thing would be quite interesting, I was left a lot of information to digest, yeah. but you mentioned a really big buzzword, which was circular economy. Yeah. And again, if you look at the way the funding works and the way the businesses work across the UK, they yeah. always go on buzzwords such as AI, <laughs> circular economy, sustainability, Absolutely. net zero, and Absolutely. everyone kind of looks to take advantage of it as well. And what you're doing is fantastic because it, one, it not only takes that away or that risk from yeah. dumps and other individuals, but yeah. it provides a pre-loved aspect. But mm-hmm. how does that, how did that buzzword really help you kind of get yeah. to where you want to be? Does it, has it really provided that momentum? Yeah. Good question. <laughs> so, you know, when, um, and I'm sure every, a lot of people, uh, especially business starters listening to this podcast, you know, and you're filling in those, um, the type forms for investors, right. And yeah. you have to sort of circle a bunch of things to say, you know, what you are. I guarantee you circular, circular economy and sustainability popped up in like everyone. So it definitely <laughs> opens the door um, mm-hmm. to, you know, to the next round. The, the issue is, and especially in that early stage is, uh, you know, where although it does become circular and sustainable by nature in the early stages, you're still pretty much using a lot of brand new items, right? So it, you really have to try and, um, explain the long-term term goal, um, but back to your to your question, Harry. Look, it it certainly helps, and it definitely opens doors. I think a lot of investors now you need to be ticking some of those boxes, especially if they're investing in that sort of space, you know. And you need to show why and how, and you know, can you prove this on some level? It's still early for us, but we do want to understand. I mean, it's it's really tricky, right, to try and measure these things. But you know, if for instance we manage to keep a sofa out in the, the economy for four or five years. You know, can we try and pin a sort of number on carbon, how much that's saved versus, you know, how, how often people would get rid of those? I'm sure there's a way to do it, and I'm sure we'll definitely to dig down a bit deeper. But, yeah, uh, back to your question, it certainly helped quite a bit. You're definitely on the right track in regards yeah. to all, because, again, it's yeah. with the rental properties increasing, exactly. everyone kind of struggling at the moment. It's a really, really good business model, exactly. especially when you see all this furniture. And the one yeah. thing that mm-hmm. really stands out is if you were to go to a dump, for instance, yeah. you do have to pay exorbitant fees to get rid of the bed, to get yeah. rid of the furniture and couches. But giving them repurpose in life is a really, really good model. Yeah. And it also follows the model of that in Japan and a couple of other countries. And I know big brands like IKEA also do something similar where you return your old furniture, recycle it. It's a great ethos aspect. But exactly. the Japanese did a very good approach where 
Yeah. They don't throw any electronics away. I know yours is furniture, but yeah, they recycle yeah. everything. They recycle 95% of all electronics and mm-hmm. your whole business model is correct. It's fantastic. No, just, just touching on that point. Cause I think it's a great one. And we've been ch- chatting about this a lot. So we've sort of, we started at the tip right where we know that it's, um, it's, it's easy to acquire the furniture. We know where it's coming from. We know how to get it delivered. That's all great. But I think we literally scratching the surface on how much more we could be doing because, and, and look, I'm not saying that we could, you know, be across the whole of the UK, but certainly in major cities, we could definitely be in, especially across Europe, it's, it's definitely on the roadmap, but like there is so much furniture that's either going to get thrown away or that's on its way. And there's no reason why you can't stop scooping that stuff up, making sure it's in really good neck. I'm not saying, you know, like I, I, we don't want to turn, we need to make sure that there's a level of quality we maintain across the site, right? I don't want to go and grab a chair from the dump and start renting it. But there is a huge amount of items that end up going to the dump that certainly could have another lifespan. So we're, we're very much early doors, but um, yeah, there's, there's a lot more we could be doing across that. And certainly in the coming years, we'll, we'll start targeting it. There's also quite an interesting one down in uh, Elstree in, in North, or not say North London, but just on the outskirts. Yeah. where there's a dump that actually repurposes all the equipment and sells it on and kind of puts it in their own little pocket as an additional revenue stream. But okay. if you've been down to the dumps recently, you see all those nice TVs, all the really nice stuff that exactly. it's, a, yeah, it's a very rich area. It's They've going to have those. really rich items. <laughs> exactly. They've got those whole containers full of TVs, yeah. fridges. I mean, you can just go and have your pick. But take them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. No, so we did think. Yeah. We, no, we didn't think of a big problem in a city like London because yeah. there's a lot of people always, you know, leaving London and arriving to London. You get a lot of people mm-hmm. who literally just leave all their stuff behind. Yeah, absolutely. And where is it going to go? All to the dump. Which yeah, is no. things, right? So, um, so there's been obviously, there's a lot of companies similar to us, um, Rover, uh, to name a few, you know, have gone on to raise hundreds of millions, but they obviously sort of recycling on their tech side of things, which, which mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense. We did look into it, although again, capital-wise and everything else, you know, you need to, you need to have a significant backing. Um, we looked at electronics to bring in because we get asked it a lot. Um, you know, a lot of people, if you're going to rent a full house of furniture, you would like a fridge, etc. There's one hurdle on the electronics side that we're not quite at the scale to cover is all those items would need to be pat tested yearly. Like, there's a lot of health and safety that goes on the electronics side that you just don't have um, on the furniture side. So it's definitely something we would like to explore, but again, you need to have the head, the head count, and you know, you, it's yeah. sort of a whole other strand of a business that you really need to be built for. So, about the R and D aspect of this as well, how much research and development do you do in actually defining these ideas, looking into these products, and really finding new ways to innovate and change? Is that a really big aspect of what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, so it's um, it's it's really hot uh, hot question at the moment. I had, a, I had a board meeting the other night. And we're discussing our seed round at the moment, you know, what, what aspects. So up until now, on the tech side, the tech build, we haven't really done anything. And the reason why, so we've strung together, like if you had a look under the hood, you'd be like, oh my God, how do these guys survive? Because everything's sort of, you know, stuck down the cellar tape. But it's working and it's fine and we're growing and it's good. But part of the seed round is going to be building something sort of from the ground up, the marketplace that we know we need. Because in the beginning, you know, a year and a half, two years ago when we were discussing this, the problem with starting tech first is we don't really know what we're trying to build, right? 
We don't really know what the customers want. We don't really know what our suppliers need. We don't really know what we need. So the problem with diving into it sort of tech and R&D first is we don't really know what we're building. That being said, we've now had a solid year and a half of understanding exactly what we want this to look like, what we need in capabilities, functions, you know, what suppliers need. So we're now going to, as part of the seed round, have um, a significant portion of that seed round will actually go to building the sort of the research development, the tech side of the platform, and then, you know, the, the R&D tax credits as well. I believe that they've gone down recently. Quite a joke. Um, but yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll form a big part of our next round um, is actually doing, doing that side. We just needed to understand a little bit better what it is we're trying to achieve on that side. So this is quite interesting. And then what about user validation as well? Are you going to be looking or working with other accelerators, innovation hubs to kind of validate this? Is that kind of your pathway or just kind of just getting out there and seeing how yeah. it goes? So we were, so I won't lie, we've only just started to discuss it. I think um, around that side, the accelerator side, we're definitely in a good position to go. And I think we sort of get it, I mean, not late to the game, but a lot of companies don't come here when they're at a million ARR and stuff like that. However, I still feel we're very much early doors, and I think joining something like that to help us along the way could be hugely beneficial. Um, but it's something that we need to discuss in much more depth um, before sort of nailing it down. Interesting. I, yeah. I was just thinking it's quite interesting the way you've built your business because if you read any website or any book about entrepreneurship, they always said, no, you need to go and you know get the investors first, and then you need to spend a small fortune in software development because everything yeah. needs to work all the time and absolutely <laughs> where your focus from what you just told us is was literally just getting clients right let's get some clients yeah. let's get you know money and then furniture through the door to make oh. sure everyone's happy in the process and then let's worry about everything else let's worry it's, about getting investment or yeah. getting, you know a higher amount of money in the business let's worry about actually building you know a very tech heavy type of business where we actually absolutely. i'm assuming you're leaving off spreadsheets right now i could exactly. be wrong. i mean spreadsheet yeah. so you should see the order process it's fantastic <laughs> but look the thing is i mean look the thing is it's it's definitely full you know it's a full-time role right myself and my co-founder put in a hell of a shift to keep the to keep the wheels moving but it's what we've got to do now the, the thing is is given the model and given how it, it's very rare in the uk or europe there's not many like it and um, mm -hmm. yes there's been success stories we knew that in order to make this work, we need to prove concept first and prove it in a significant way. And even when we move in, you know, hopefully we are, are sort of our aim is to get to that millionaire or next month. And even when we're there, because a lot of VCs say, look, you need to get there first before we start having, you know, meaningful conversations. This million, magical million ARR seems to yeah. be a real tipping point. I'm sure when we get there, they'll say make it too. But anyway, let's focus on the one for now. And um, our whole thing is that, once once we're there and we can prove that, look, this is a business, you know, we're there or thereabouts and break even, all we need now is to really double down and build something sustainable on the tech side and really double down on the marketing. We've got, you know, really good ideas and focus on what our CAC is, how long, you know, average order value, all of these things. I mean, look, I'm sure it will change next year, but at yeah. least for now, we feel in a comfortable position to actually go and present this, you know, to potential VCs and say, look, this is where we're at. You know, does it excite you? Because it, it certainly does us. I just say, yeah, it would be quite interesting to get your view on one of the big areas there. Working as an entrepreneur, it's a lot of dedication. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you mentioned you're working on this full time. So you'd have no other role outside of this. This is full time commitment. 
it'd be quite interesting to our audience to see how are you finding it? What, what's it like? Is it very lonely world or is it full on exciting and, yeah. as they say, adventurous? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, look, it, it, has its, it has its days, right? Um, there's some days when you absolutely... The thing is, it, it often, I've noticed my days track revenue score. So if we're having a really good month, I'm in a really good mood. And I don't mind it. But the days, the months when we're not tracking where we should be tracking, I find it, it quite hard. And then the thing is, the small little things will irritate you, right? Like processes that are delaying things. Or we could be doing better here and we could be doing better here. So it, it's, been, it's been quite a challenge. The nice thing about being the, the owner of a company or founder of a company, however one you call it, I find that during the day, if I do start to flag and get tired, which I'm sure happens, I'll quite happily just walk away from the laptop for an hour, take a stroll. I've got a dog. I'll take the dog for a stroll. Like I'll just sort of break away for a bit and then come back and crack on. And I think the reason I'm a little bit less hard on myself for doing things like that is I know that I'll have to switch on the laptop at 8 p.m. and crack on for two hours. And I mean, throughout the day, we're certainly making up the hours, right? It's, it, we're, not, we're not sort of ducking the hours. It's just like sometimes if you can feel that you're not really being productive, shut the laptop for an hour, you know, go for a walk, have a glass of water, a cup of coffee, what, what, you know, whatever's your, your vice. Because, um, yeah, it, it can become, you know, super long days. And if you're doing repetitive things, um, yeah, it helps just, just to break away. But I'm actually um, I'm going down to Cornwall on Sunday for a week, uh, which I'm really looking forward to. And I've told my co-founder I'll be turning my uh, laptop off at least for two of those days. I need to pick which one. <laughs> I'll still have my phone, so I mean, I'll get the emails. <laughs> but this actually brings bring us to an interesting question, which is how do you and your co-founder manage this, this workflow or, or yeah. this flow state? Let's call it this way, right? Because you can't always be on. 100%. No. And also, you need to communicate well with the co-founder. So no. how do you manage this process? Because I think a lot of, even me and Harry, whenever we're recording the podcast, it's like, it's go time, it's no go time. It's time for me to rest, it's time for me to work. Yeah. How, how do you manage that? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a really good, it's a really good question. And we were saying the other day, the problem is, and, and we're really struggling with this at the moment. It's, it's a real big pain point. We're hiring for an operations manager. Mm -hmm. The problem is the operations manager that we're hiring for, and this is why we're probably struggling to hire for it. it. It sort of sits between somebody who's fully behind a laptop and somebody who's going to be in a warehouse making sure orders are going out, coming mm -hmm. in. You know, it's, it's a bit of a dual task and we're really struggling to find somebody. There's a lot of operations managers who just want to sit behind a laptop. Yeah. And then there's people who just want to sit in the warehouse. And we're really struggling to find the combination of the two. So if anybody knows anyone in, near Sutton who's <laughs> looking for an operations lead role, please send them my way. And um, so, but uh, to sort of come back to your story, the reason why we, you know, we're looking for this role is Oscar and I are so deep in the apps, every movement of the company that it's really hard to pull away from those processes and let somebody else sort of come in and, and manage that because you keep on checking in, like, is it getting done correctly? Do they fully understand? Like it, it's, me and Oscar just sort of were on the same tune the whole time about it. We know when orders come in, this is what you do, this without even talking to each other. And me and him need to try and stop this, right? And let somebody come in and give this task to them. Because one of the, you know, and I'm sure you guys know, and especially a lot of the, your listeners will, is, you know, raising money and especially when you go for the seed round, that in itself is a full time job. Raising money yeah, is definitely. an extremely hard, especially in this climate. So, yeah, so, you know, on, on your point, Oscar and I work like clockwork. He very much manages a lot of the operational side. I look after the revenue side. 
So we mm -hmm. fit together really well. We understand what everyone else is doing. However, it can't just be me and him running this, right? We need yeah. to, you know, we also we need to get people in. We need to trust them. We, we recently hired um, another account manager. And again, she's now looking after a lot of the inbounds that are coming in. I, it's find it hard to stop myself from going in and checking on each of those leads. <laughs> have they been called? <laughs> have you sent an email? You know, where are they? Where are they? And I, as, a, as a founder, you know, you need to, and look, I'm you know, struggling with it at the moment. You need to try and step back and trust the people you mm. hire for those roles to do those roles and almost be the sort of the guiding light behind. But it's tricky. Yeah, it's probably you know, really easy. I was going I might go on to another point there in right. regards to hiring individuals and people that you really, really trust. Yeah. If you, would you be open to giving shares to someone who really fits into your ethos and can really get you to that next stage? Is that something that you would ever consider? Yeah. There is that structure about giving shares out, bringing people on, yeah. or yeah. giving people shares too early and kind of going down this year approach. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. about trust. You mentioned about fitting into the ethos, working, kind of taking touch things and stepping away. Is that part of what you would do normally? Or is yeah. that something that you to learn and kind of go into it as well? Yeah, so for all the roles, um, bar a couple, you know, sort of d the delivery driving drivers and stuff, all of the roles that we're hiring for now come in with share options. Uh, those share options, the, uh, like most share options in the UK, I, th I think this is pretty common actually, but mm -hmm. a four-year vesting period. So yeah. in my mind, if you, so we've got a six-month probation period and then you're, you know, the sort of the normal vesting over those four years, more than happy if you last, you know, if you're sort of getting over that year mark, you're clearly part, you know, you're adding a lot of value um, you know, we've got a very sort of higher, higher quick, if they're not fitting in, you know, let's sort of make changes quick as well. The thing is hiring and I, you know, I did a lot of hiring in my previous role. It's extremely like you get a good gut sense and you can ask a couple of questions and you can get as far as you can, but it's a sort of, you know, let's say max two hours conversation throughout the interview process. You're not going to know somebody like the back of your hand in that time. Right. But if you have a good feeling They've done really well in the past and you've checked references. You know, if, if they come on board and they're doing really well, then, you know, in this early stage, they're contributing to you guys getting there. I think it that dilutes a little bit when you get to 50, 100 employees. You know, that, that sort of uh, additional ad is less and less. But when yeah. you're a team of four, five, six, ten, you know, the That's extra hire, it's significant value to what you guys are building. So, yeah, I'm a firm believer. We definitely do offer shares, um, you know, and, and with the caveat of, there's a vesting period. So if I do make a mistake or if they make a mistake, which sometimes happens, you know, at least there's sort of time to, to, to move away. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think that's, that's probably the reason why a lot of people, when they think that they are competent enough and they believe in their skill sets, that's why they want to join startups, right? Because exactly. they, they want to build something that they also believe in instead of just working for a very large corporation where actually they might not feel either as valued or feel like they actually make any difference. Where yeah, if you absolutely. start a startup early days, everything you say, it's going to be a valid point and everyone's going to listen in and it actually can, can change the way the company is being yeah. you know, built. So, yeah. so I, um, I was actually at Amazon for a couple of years before I went over to, my, to, to, the, to what was a startup yeah, seven odd years ago now. Um, and when I moved from Amazon, which is like you walk in, that's your yeah. laptop, this is your job, you know, completely structured, you know exactly what's happening. 24-7 going into the startup, I was just like, wow, <laughs> what's going on here? This is different. But like some people really excel, right? I quite like the fact that I don't have somebody breathing down my neck, you know, 24-7. This is the role. This is what you need to do. 
and this is what it looks like. Good job, great job, and excellent job. Go on and crack on. And I think some people like that, right? Like the ability to really add value to what they're doing. You come in in a startup, you know at the end of the day if you've had a great day or shit day. You you yeah. fully understand those birds. Yeah, it's, it's Christopher. I wanted to ask you something regarding the business itself. How do you? Yeah. How big is like the warehouse you guys have? Is there a warehouse? Is there not a warehouse? How do you manage yeah. this process? Because moving things around in, in London is quite complex. You know, by okay. itself, but also, how do you make sure that everything is well packed? Nothing gets destroyed in the process. How does that? Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. So, firstly, we we work with really good suppliers, and the reason I flag this is so there's there's a, there's a, there is a cheat code to what we're doing. We could use really cheap suppliers that yeah. would massively increase our margins. The problem is, and this is the downfall to the cheat code is. None of those items would last. So I don't know if you guys have ever tried to put an IKEA wardrobe together, let's say. Once that wardrobe is together, you are never taking it apart. Yeah, no. you're never taking it apart and putting it back together again, right? So by using really good suppliers, where it's you know solid wood, metal, stone, it's stuff that's going to last five, ten years, right? We know that that we're investing now to get a really big payback at the end. So so that was key in, in the, the sort of the starting out process. And also then customers have a level of quality that they can expect. And, you know, we can hopefully grow a really reliable sort of consumer base from that, one that recommends their friends, et cetera. Um, in terms of the warehouse, so yes, we do. It's 3,200 square foot. Um, it was like, wow. When I signed the lease on it, I was like, wow, <laughs> this is crazy. Mom, look at me. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, we got a warehouse. We've got um, guys who are there. So a lot of the packaging, so with the suppliers that we use, the packaging itself, I mean, it's, it's crazy how much packaging they use. So yeah. we actually recycle a lot of the packaging they use. So if they go and they do a delivery, they will take that packaging back. We'll store the packaging. If we get that item back, we'll put the item back in that packaging, obviously seal it back up. The thing is, is to go out and to be buying all new packaging, it would be such a waste of money. Like, yeah. There's nothing wrong. You know what I mean? If you're fully glad wrapping these things and boxing it up Very twice, true. there's no, no reason to be doing that twice. So a lot of those items are, are sort of packed again in, in SA boxing. Again, we haven't had any issues. I think consumers quite like it along the whole sustainability, mm -hmm. circularity side. And then with the items that do need to be obviously redone, we have a team in there who's who's doing it. Thankfully, and, and I'm sure this problem will scale as we grow, at the moment, it's super manageable what we have coming in versus what we have going out. Mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, as we grow, that headache will, will only grow as well. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. <laughs> I want to pick up on your point about the uh, recycling aspect. I know we spoke about the circular economy a little earlier on. But would you ever work with other companies that are working on innovative approaches, such as biodegradable waste? I think there's cork mm. and there's individuals that are trying to do alternatives to tree and wood and other areas. Mm -hmm. Would you ever incorporate that into your warehouse logistics, yeah. what you're Absolutely. doing, your packaging? Absolutely. Is that a key feature for the future? Absolutely. So one of the things, and we've spoken about this, I mean, I think I've probably spoken to more about Oscar than anyone, but... So sofas is a really big thing for me, right? A lot of our sofas sort of clip together. When they clip apart, they sort of, you can fold it onto each other and that the sofa sort of, you know, it fits quite neatly in, you know, it's just, you slide it into a box sort of thing. You could easily create like a very durable bag for lack of a better sense, not really bag, but maybe even like a thick padded cotton bag that you could go take it to a consumer's house, sofa out, take the bag back. And you could use that 100, 200, 300 times. Just mm -hmm. keep it going, right? And you would never need to use plastic again to com yeah. you know, completely sort of seal that. So 100%, there, there's definitely got to be better ways. 
than what we're currently doing at the moment. So yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely part of the roadmap. I don't think we should be, you know, buying new bubble wrap every time, which is why we, you know, we're using what we currently have. Cause yeah, it's, um, it's a huge, a, a huge waste. Uh, and, you know, we obviously, we're doing, you know, dump runs at the moment. The nice thing is, is we work with the company that actually pays us for our cardboard and stuff. We do get rid of, obviously we need to get rid of the plastics. But yeah, I mean, you, you don't really want to be adding to this to this mess, right? If anything, you, you want to be deducting from it at some point. Yeah, that's a weird question. But have yeah. you ever considered working with the local councils as well? Like just reaching out to them about looking at the dumps or the suppliers. I know you get the yeah. a local individual turn up with a little van, picking up all the used materials and other yeah. stuff. And, and they're just looking for someone to help get rid of it all. Is, yeah. is that something to consider? Yeah, so we've signed um, a partnership with the British Heart Foundation. So at the end of any life cycle we have of any product let's just say it comes in and we have a look and we like look it's you know we, we can't really justify charging anyone for the product although it's still in really good nick it's just past the commercial lifespan we work with them they come and collect the items take the items and give it you know to to their sort of charity or wh- whoever sort of needs it on their side which is great i think i mean the partnership at the moment is still very young obviously we need to get to the point where there's a lot of you know items ending their their commercial cycle if you would uh, mm-hmm. We're not there yet, but I'm sure that will scale. And and on your point of the councils, it's a it's a great point. We should probably look into that a bit more. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it's rewarding, yeah. but hard. <laughs> right. Cool. So I guess you know if we're kind of reaching the end of the podcast. Can you tell us where people can find you if they want to find you? So where can of course. they find you? Yeah, of course. So just a um, just a quick one on that. Um, so uh, probably a little bit more for the UK listeners. But um, so we've just been through an FCA approval. So if you rent anything for longer than three months, you've got to be FCA approved. Huge, uh, huge challenge, huge amount of work. Um, so yeah, there's been a couple of people who, who reached out to me recently asking for advice and contacts around that. So if there's anyone listening who's going through that, feel free to reach out. Obviously, my name is Bradley Horner. You can find me on LinkedIn or just Bradley at homebound.co.uk. Uh, you know, as I said, pick it up pretty much 24-7. So <laughs> I'm sure I'll get back to you. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, I guess this is Bradley. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, me and Harry really appreciate it. And yeah, I hope our listeners go on your website because you have really, really nice Cheers. furniture. I hope my girlfriend does not go on your website. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me.